Hey everybody, it's Tanya from Recovering Church Girls, and I am so excited. I know I say that every time. You guys are probably getting tired of how excited I am. However, I have with me today Linda K. Klein, who is the author of Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Women and How I Broke Free. So you've seen the book. You probably have already read it, and I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. Thank you so much, Linda, for being a part of this. I'm really excited to be here. And I need to apologize. You guys can clearly tell I'm still stuck with this stupid head cold. <laughs> so I've got my lemon ginger tea. I've got my tissues off camera. Hopefully, you know, you guys can, can deal with me being a little stuffy. I wasn't going to miss this opportunity to chat with Linda. So thank you for your patience in, uh, in working through that. Um, you Linda. sound great. <laughs> well, You're hiding you. it well. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that's the important part, right? Like the right. show must go on. <laughs> oh, so we're already already such a major theme of of uh, recovering church girls. <laughs> so actually, let's go ahead and like just follow that. One of the things that I so appreciated about your book, especially in the early part, is you're really setting the foundation to kind of step back and look at the big practice the big picture and look at the systems and the structure that is in place to perpetuate the purity culture and perpetuate a lot of the narratives that you and I both talk about. Where did you find yourself kind of entering into this, this moment? Can you tell us for anyone who hasn't read yet, tell us about your own personal experience and, and how that showed up specifically recognizing what was happening with your own body. Cause mm. I think that's a huge piece. Mm. Well, let's, I'm going to tell a particular moment because you talked about the body. So, uh, so I mean, ultimately it started with being a recovering church girl, uh, ultimately, and the recovering church girl came out of a very specific body experience. So I got very sick when I was in college and ended up having to undergo a series of surgeries. And over the course of these surgeries, I lost 40 pounds. I, you know, was incredibly weak. I have Crohn's disease. And so actually the surgery, the big surgery that I did was actually, I had a, um, an ileostomy bag for a period of time. If anyone knows what that is, is it ain't fun, right? <laughs> and so for a year between my third and my fourth surgery, I had this ileostomy bag and I, they wanted to, uh, to reverse that and to um, create what's called a J pouch inside of me. But in order to do that, I had to heal and I just wasn't healing. So I had this year of just uh, really tremendous illness. And in that year, it was really kind of a transitional period for me where I was already starting to question a lot of things about the um, community in which I was was raised, um, particularly around sexuality and gender teachings. Um, but I also still felt like it was such a part of me, right? Mm. So in that year, I actually became a youth group leader for first year high school girls. Now, as, as I said, I barely had anything in me. So I mean, honestly, you know, I was probably leaving the house maybe three or four times a week. And two of those times was to go to youth group and to lead this, this girl's group. And once a week, I got together with a girl one-on-one, -on -one, right? And we would go out for coffee or we would go out for uh, ice cream or we'd go to a park or something. And we'd have these deep one-on-one -on -one conversations. Two things happened during that year that were really important. Um, one is that a number of the girls would ask me questions about the body and about sexuality teachings that they are receiving in the church. And I was faced with this reality that I 
knew the rules. I knew what I was supposed to tell them. I knew that when they said, hey, someone told me that if I masturbate, I'm going to emasculate my future husband and we're going to have a horrible marriage. Is that true? I knew what I was supposed to say right? I knew that I was not supposed to say, no, masturbation is an important way of, you know, knowing yourself and, you know, being in relationship with yourself, which is required for being in a relationship with God. I couldn't say that. No, that would not have gotten you any gold stars. It would not have gotten me any gold stars. So, so that was happening, right? That those kinds of conversations where I was really wrestling with the fact that I was changing um, my theology, at sort of a core level, and it was no longer in alignment with my community, which became exposed and obvious to me when I was in a position where I had to um, to tell a community of girls a theology that I was coming to discover on a personal level was deeply harmful to me. Mm-hmm. So to tell you the other thing that was happening, you know, the other thing that was happening was this sickness that I was experiencing was deeply related to this problematic theology. So when I was growing up, I really believed that my spirit had to, uh, had to conquer my body, right? <laughs> you know, that my spirit and my mind, you know, you had to, to willfully and prayerfully bring down, uh, you know, push down all sexual thoughts and feelings, obviously, mm-hmm. right? But that extended to the body overall. So when I got incredibly sick, you know, I did talk about it with people, but when people really dismissed me, including, you know, people in my community and the doctors that I would go to, I decided that I needed to put less energy into getting better um, and more energy into suffering better, mm-hmm. being a better good girl, right? A girl who didn't complain, a girl who didn't cause problems, a girl who suffered, uh, you know, and found her joy in the Lord, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And the result of that was my uh, almost losing my life from Crohn's disease, which really shouldn't be something that should kill you because there's a lot that we could have done. Um, But instead, it was deeply ignored by my community, by my medical community, and by me, Right. And, and the result of that was that um, when I was very sick in this year, right, I remember um, being pulled aside at one point early on in between the third and the fourth surgery. So in the beginning part of this year, when I was really at my sickest and, uh, and told that I wanted, that I was being um, asked to play the Virgin Mary in the church live nativity scene. Now, this was completely crazy for me because I was the one who was always, you know, sort of cast as the demon or cast as the whore, right? Like I was the one who was constantly being pulled aside and told I was a stumbling block because my skirt was too short or I was talking to the boys too much or whatever it was. So for me to be... familiar at all. uh, Right, right, right. (laughs) So for me to be cast as Mary was just mind-blowing. And I realized that it was because, you know, for the first time I was really um, who... I was expected to be within that community. Mm. I was quiet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was um, too weak to have the sort of boisterousness that I think was interpreted as sexuality by my Mm -hmm. community, right? My energy, my boisterousness, I think people categorized as sexuality. Um, You know, and those short skirts looked very different on a body that was emaciated Mm -hmm. (laughs) from illness. (laughs) You know, and, and so, you know, and so I, I was sort of desexualized and that desexualization made me good in the community's eyes. Mm-hmm. So here I am talking to these girls and I'm questioning these teachings on a really significant level. And I'm just like, how can I tell them to 
ignore their bodies? Mm -hmm. How can I tell them to do um, something that I did very, very well for a very long time and that led me here right. to this point of tremendous uh, life-threatening illness and having an ileostomy bag, right? Mm. You know, I can't, I can't tell them those same messages that I learned growing up. And that's when, of course, I realized that I, um, there was no place for me within the community because, uh, because there wasn't the flexibility to teach anything else. That sounds all very, very familiar. When you I feel like that was a very winding story. If, you're, if your audience if you <laughs> followed me on that, did you follow me on that? I, I, I absolutely did. There was a lot happening. There was a lot <laughs> happening. But it was a very powerful, it was a very powerful year. And, you know, per your question about the body, it feels like, yeah, I felt like I, I needed to tell that particular story. of complex. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and especially because I feel like so often we are encouraged as women in the church to diminish ourselves to the point where we don't trust ourselves anymore. Mm. And it could be anything on a physical level. It could be emotional. Sometimes it's mental. Sometimes it's spiritual. But there's this separation of who we are and honestly who God has designed us to be from all the pieces of ourselves. And I think mm. that that's kind of the first piece in the not only disassociation, but also further separating us from what we were always supposed to be, you know, by bringing all these pieces together. But for me on the, the physicality of it, that was definitely a huge piece as well. And I remember I actually was uh, just talking to my therapist about this not too long ago. And I was like, I am still working on my intuition. Like I'm mm. still bringing all the pieces back together. And she's like, well, what do you mean that you don't you don't trust your intuition anymore. And I was like, well, let me explain. <laughs> so it's just kind of like, you got to, it's almost like, you know, if you weren't there, you don't quite get it. It's one of those types of stories. You know, so I actually coded my interviews and coded them by themes. And I was going through the coded interviews recently because I was writing something. And so I was just kind of pulling, pulling out that data again. And what I came up with um, really shocked me. I was going through all the different tags and this tag of self-distrust mm. or not trusting your intuition or not trusting your feelings or not trusting your thoughts was one of the most... Uh, it was, there were more people who had content that I had tagged that way than almost any other topic. It was a massive theme in these conversations. And I think it's so interesting that your therapist would be like, what are you talking about when it's such a huge theme, which I think right. speaks to the challenge that we have, that there are so many people who don't understand this experience that, um, you know, that we've had, you know, evangelicals being a quarter of the country, mm. you know, how is it that there is still such a lack of understanding for this massive subcultures experience that has dramatically influenced the nation and in fact the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's so important to, to really tease out the full implication of the impact that we each had individually, but then also collectively. So I really appreciate that that's part of the work that you're doing in this, because I think to bring attention to not only the structure, but also the narrative that's being perpetuated by that structure. And then finally, and probably most importantly, as far as I'm concerned, the individual one-on-one -on -one here's what happened to me and being able to validate that experience together, but then also saying, okay, where do we go from here? Because I think so often you see, you know, kind of in this faith deconstruction type of time period, there are a lot of people that are so hurt that they want to stay in that space because they know that space. And mm -hmm. to be able to put anything back together again, whether 
you know, you're choosing what to believe at this point, or you're choosing what your community looks like, or, you know, whatever the case might be, there's a lot of responsibility in that choice. And sometimes it's easier to stay in a place of pain and suffering and not need to, you know, kind of do the internal work to unpack all of that. Can you tell me a little bit about what that process was like for you? How, especially as you're writing this book, I can only imagine the, the toll that this must have taken. But when you're putting through, you know, kind of all of the pieces, what did your deconstruction look like for you specifically? Hmm. Yeah, that's so insightful about people wanting to, to stay in what's familiar because there is a kind of comfort. And um, let me just respond to that first. You know, there, there's something... Um, about knowing the rules, mm. right? You might know that the rules are unjust and that the rules are hard, hurting you, but you also know how to win within those rules. Yes, I love that you said <laughs> that. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if you start to do the work of deconstruction, you don't even know what the rules are anymore. Right. <laughs> and, and I know so many people, and, and I put myself within this category, who when they first started to deconstruct, it was like, like what, like what is okay and what's not okay? And, you know, I know some guys who grew up in purity culture who are doing some stuff where I'm like, no, <laughs> out here in the world, I mean, I'm glad you're embracing your sexuality, but this isn't how we function. <laughs> like, you know, like, bring it down. <laughs> you and know, and so fascinating because it really, for so many of us, it shows up completely differently. Yeah. And to be able to find that place of, you know, you do you. And what does that mean? Because as an evangelical, it was my job to save the world. And if you didn't believe the way that I believed, and if you didn't act the way that we both said that we believed, then, you know, it's my job to be the one to get you on the straight and narrow. Mm -hmm. So to go from that Mm -hmm. to, hey, you do you. I see you. I validate you. I'm here for you as a person and no judgment beyond that. That that was a bigger jump than what I thought it was going to be. Right. I agree. But I also think, I also think there's something in the you do you that, uh, that I want to zero in on that is, um, tied to your, tied to your sort of frame around the safety of knowing the rules within the system that you used to be in. And that is that you do you is, uh, not a rule system. Um, it's not even a value system. So true. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, so what I find that people often end up experiencing and certainly that I experienced when I, you know, entered a, a totally different sphere of existence was, you know, how do I now make decisions? How do I now, um, what tools do I use? Okay, so maybe I don't want to be in this uh, rule-based system that forces me to, to say, this is how to be good and everything else is bad. And, you know, maybe that's not what I want anymore, which, you know, is, was not what I wanted anymore. But, you know, but having total, total, uh, total freedom is also, you know, that's what leads to a lot of violence. That's what leads to a lot of harassment. That's what leads to all kinds of things. So how do we make decisions? So I, so I refer to this period in my book as the gap, right? Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's certainly something that I experienced and it's something that many of my interviewees experienced where you go from this landing of, uh, of one particular worldview right? And you leap off the cliff or you accidentally walk off the cliff or whatever. Somehow you're off the cliff, right? And there is another way of being in the world. And there is another way of understanding the world and another, maybe not rule system, but value system Mm -hmm. that exists, right? But you can't 
see it yet. (laughs) It's like out in the horizon. And what I find often happens when people are in the gap is it's this period of tremendous confusion and often trial and error. Mm. So people are, um, you know, completely gravity less, (laughs) right? You're floating, you're being whipped from one side to the other. You know, you're, you're in this state of um, anxiety and fear and, you know, you go back to the old way and then you fly out to the new way. Right. And, um, and I'll, Oftentimes, you know, people can in that period, uh, if we don't have the grounding of, um, of, you know, somebody to talk to or something like that, you know, can, can actually be hurt because this trial and error can involve things that, you know, we're, we're just trying to figure it out, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So we're trial and erring and hurting and helping ourselves into, you know, what else is there? Right. And I think, I think that's one of the things that was so difficult for me about, um, about growing up in the evangelical church or about growing up within um, what I would call an answer system, right? Because certainly it's not the only answer system to get to what you were saying, right? Mm-hmm. Around trying to do everything just right. You know, and that is that when you grow up within an answer system, when you realize that those answers don't work for you, right? That those answers only work for a small percentage of the population, <laughs> you know, then you have nothing. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of values-based systems where we teach people about, you know, values like justice and values like um, self-care and values like care for others and, you know, things like that, which then as we go through life, we can use those values to, to make um, decisions as the world changes, as we change, as our situation changes and so on and so forth. So I think that is probably one of the biggest the biggest challenges, um, you know, to growing up within an answer system is, uh, is, is finding, is finding that you have to transition to a whole new way of looking at the world and having no tools to do it. Absolutely. And I love that idea of going from an answers-based system to a values-based system, because I mean, I remember again, growing up in, in Sunday school and youth group and this idea that the values we were taught were all supported by the Bible in some way, shape or form. And so it was this idea of, well, the Bible says this and the Bible says that. And in reality from, you know, again, the deconstruction perspective is just kind of like, yeah, but the Bible isn't the only one that's saying that this is a good way to go about life. And so there is a bit of this, um, you know, kind of the, the emphasis being put on almost the horse before the court <laughs> in terms of saying, yeah, the Bible does support love each other. So do a lot of other religious texts, a lot of other, you know, philosophical base. There's so many different layers that you can approach from creating a worldview. And I think that that's been something, um, you know, especially growing up, just this idea of anything that could be labeled as new age was thrown into the box, you know, duct taped a thousand different directions. Don't touch this. Right. Yet so much of what I personally have experienced, I'm like, I can find half a dozen scripture verses for every single thing that falls under the new age branch. Right. Right. Actually all tied together. Like, what are you talking about? So I mean, right. that's just one example from me personally. Um, but yeah, I love the idea of a values-based system as opposed to the answers. We were yeah, talking- and oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say, and there, you know, to your point, there are values that we might have learned within our community growing up and within our religious community that we actually want to have, you know, continue to be with us, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, but 
but there might be other values that we do not. But to even be able to separate out what were the values of this community, um, you know, and which of those do I want to hold on to, right? Mm-hmm. The value that some people uh, are in and some people are out, you know, and that, that is a value in some ways, right? A, uh, you know, this idea of, um, of the binary, you know, is, is a value. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not one that I want to hold on to. Right. Whereas, whereas the value of, um, of radical love that I remember learning in the community, right. Mm-hmm. The, of radical hospitality that I remember learning in the community. I still walk around, I go to other churches and I'm like, y'all, <laughs> practice some radical hospitality, right? Like, you know, like I remember in evangelicalism, if you went into, you know, a church, you were, you were welcomed by five people by the time you left, right? That right. was a value. That was a value that I think is beautiful and mm-hmm. that I would want to hold on to and bring into other spaces, spaces where, um, you know, where one can be welcomed ongoing and not just welcomed at the onset and then told that they must uh, change in order to maintain their welcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love the the parallel that you drew in that because I remember visiting new churches and it was, we were, you know, the sudden new superstars of the church. And then a few weeks in, it's like, oh, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) Could we get to the actual relationship part of things as opposed to just, you know, it's my job today to make you feel welcome. Do you feel welcome? Right, 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 right. But, But I completely agree with you at the same time. I mean, hospitality is definitely something close to my heart, having been in the wedding industry for 20 years, you know, all about all the little touches and the things that we do to make other people feel welcome. Um, so you definitely hit on, you know, one of my favorite keepsakes of, mm. of that community mm. as well. Yeah. yeah. But you actually asked me a question that I uh, didn't answer. You asked me about how I deconstructed. <laughs> so, I, so I realized that I was like, yeah, let me talk about this other thing first. Now here we are 10 minutes later. Do you still want me to I would love that. And I I even want to add a a secondary question to that. How does that work or how did that work um, within your own family of origin? As we're talking Mm -hmm. about this idea of separating the values from their sources or how that shows up. And then as we go on our individual journeys, we're never completely isolated. So the Mm -hmm. community you still have being your family of origin, how did all of that play out for you? Mm Hmm. Well, so first of all, my own deconstruction had a lot to do with the research that I did for this book, of course, because it started it started when I was in my mid-20s, when I went back to my hometown and um, started interviewing the girls that I grew up with in my youth group. You know, over a 10-year span, everybody was in their 20s, from 20 to 29, and I was in my mid-20s. So all of the older sisters, all the younger sisters, everybody <laughs> I could find, right? Um, which, of course, led to 12 years of interviews with people from around the country who were raised in white American evangelical churches as girls um, and others. And that was the primary uh, way in which I deconstructed because uh, hearing other people's stories that reflected the truth of my own life, um, hearing the ways in which, first of all, hearing the similarities of the things that we were taught around the country And secondarily, hearing the similar ways in which it lived in our bodies and in our minds as adults, you know, hearing about the shame, hearing about the fear, hearing about the anxiety, hearing about these body-based reactions 
mm-hmm. to the shame and fear and anxiety that for many people was almost like post-traumatic stress disorder, nightmares, paranoia, panic, sometimes panic attacks, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes self-harm, you know, it just uh, uh, an incredible um, consistency right? And a consistency. It was just us individually. Exactly. (laughs) Right. And a consistency that mirrored the truth of my own life. Exactly. That was huge because the more that I could see myself and my experience as shaped Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, by something external to me, the more that I could say, okay, this isn't just me and who I am and my brokenness and my badness, right? Some of these ideas that I have about what a horrible person I am are actually things that I was literally taught that I now remember I was literally taught because I just heard you say that you were taught it and I mm-hmm. remembered that too, right. <laughs> you know? So, so this experience of being able to separate myself mm. from what I was taught um, and from what I was experiencing and um, from what I even in some cases thought or mm-hmm. felt, right? Being able yeah. to say a lot of these things have been, have been shaped by something much, much bigger than me, which then, of course, led me to research what that bigger thing than me was, right? Mm-hmm. So not only was I doing all these interviews, but I was researching what is the purity movement? You know, when did that come about? How did it become an industry? Um, where did it get funded, right? All of these questions that, you know, that became really important for me to understand myself and because of this, you know, and of course showed up in the book. Um, By the way, I have to tell you, I read that section um, as I was in the waiting lobby for the dentist office and I was alternating between laughing out loud because I'm like, "Uh, yeah, that was totally my moment. And then just getting absolutely blood boiling mad when you see the structure and the construct that is funding everything and how, you know, the cyclical uh, just environment that's been created for this. Um, So again, another plug, if you guys haven't picked up the book yet, uh, that was incredibly enlightening and it pretty much echoed. I'm like, I had a funny feeling something wasn't quite right here and you've got Mm. it all laid out for the research. So thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, it was really helpful for me too, right? Because, because that allows you to do your personal work in a different way. It allows you to say, you know, like we were talking about, about the values of, of the, um, you know, religious communities in which we are raised, you know, what of this do I want to hold on to? What of this do I want to let go of recognizing that these things are external to me? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. As intrinsic as we always thought they were, or we're told. Yes. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. That's exactly right. Yeah. So that was a big part of my own deconstruction. But you asked, oh, you asked about my family. So it's interesting. I think, I think for a very long time, my mom in particular, uh, you know, evangelicalism was really important to her. And my parents are still evangelical. They still attend an evangelical church. Um, but I think for a long time, the, the subcultures, ideas about what was good and what was bad were sacred mm. for her you know, and were um, almost biblical for her as they were for many, many people, right, who believed that these subcultures, concepts, and ideas uh, were naturally emerged from the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, we were talking earlier before the, um, the, before the video started about how 
uh, how the non-denominational church, you and I both grew up in non-denominational churches, how the non-denominational church sort of purposefully separates itself from history, right? So even though it does have a history, it did come out of somewhere. <laughs> you know, the narrative is, you know, we have no denomination, we have no larger affiliation. It's just straight the word of God to what we're doing here today. Nothing happened in between, <laughs> right? This is a pure interpretation mm-hmm. of Jesus' words, right? So the result of that is that subculture ideas about what is right or what is wrong that inform their interpretation of the Bible, just as every theology has its own interpretation of the Bible, mm-hmm. um, you know, those subculture ideas begin to feel like scripture itself, so I think so I think for my mom it was it was really difficult for a long period of time that I was challenging things that were um subculture standards mm-hmm. uh you know like purity culture um uh like LGBTQ inclusion um even that word is so messed up it's not like inclusion right like right. come on <laughs> like 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 LGBTQ rights to be you know their whole selves in every setting you know right. period the idea right. that we have to specify inclusion in and of itself is kind of the problem. <sighs> right, because we're the ones who get to include, right? right. Like exactly. we're the special, we're the special ones, right? Yes. So I mean, so you know, all all of these ideas, um, you know, that I started to question that were so so central to the subcultures, I um, uh, standard of of um, spiritual good were really hard for her, and I think one of the things that has been really helpful for for us over the years, as we've, we've, we've talked about this a lot, you know, as, as you know, from reading the book, my mom and I have had many a late night tearful conversation about this, which is, you know, probably an underest, an understatement. Um, but, you know, but what I think has been really helpful for her more recently is I think she too is separating values from answers in some ways or from the subculture's definitions of answers, mm. you know? Um, and I think she's, you know, she has said that she, she sees the, she sees, she's come to believe, I think, the, the claim that I have made for many years that I felt called to do this book and mm-hmm. that this book has always felt like God's work to me, um, which I think she was really not, <laughs> not buying for a long time. But, you know, and in order to do that, you need to, you need to be able to have a values-based frame. You need to be able to say, you know, yes, God is a values-based God. God is right. a, a God that believes in, um, in, you know, us being who we were created to be in our wholeness, mm-hmm. in our, you know, spirit and in our mind and in our body, um, you know, which is, a, which is a concept that would require us to, um, to behave in certain ways, you know, standing up for people who aren't, um, you know, embraced in their wholeness, et cetera. And so, et cetera. So she's, so she's really come a long way um, in that sense and has come to really embrace me. I had a conversation recently with her that really shocked me where I said, I said, so, so are you nervous about all the people, you know, who, who probably feel bad about the book or in your community and, you know, might be, might be thinking badly about you, you know, as a result of my being your daughter and so on. <laughs> and she was like, and I really, you know, she, this is something she struggled with a lot, but, you know, very recently she's like, nah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Good for her. I was like, thank you. That's wonderful. Absolutely. She was like, you know, you know, you're doing, you're doing something important. And if they don't get it, meh. 
Yeah. That's, that's a really huge sign. Um, it sounds very familiar conversations, by the way, um, between me and my mom as well. Mm -hmm. And just this idea of being able to stay in that space of, you know what, I know that you've got your own thing with God. And I know that what you're doing is helping other people. And if that's as far as I'm going to go with it, that's okay by me. And right. to be able to have that level of conversation, that was such a gift, such yeah. a gift. Um, but I will say, I have to admit, that's as far as I've taken that conversation. <laughs> so it's kind of like, yeah, let's just stay there for a little while. Let's, you know, let's build up a little bit more trust and, and ooey gooey warmness before we, we go any further. <laughs> well, and I think you're exactly right. I think that's exactly what my mom responded to. I think she responded to so many people who are helped by this mm -hmm. work. And, you know, I mean, I get, I get messages from people every single day, you know, who are, who are expressing, um, you know, their stories, who are sharing their stories, who are sharing, um, you know, questions who are most, most of all sharing, this is my story too. Mm. And, um, and hearing it, hearing it told in so many different voices in your book, you know, was helpful for me. So, so I think that that's exactly what ultimately, you know, did it for my mom as well was, was seeing that, you know, much like your work, you know, does and like the work of many of us who work in this space, you know, it, it is, a, it is a, um, it is a conversation with, um, with hope and a conversation with healing and a conversation with recovery that is, um, that is really important. And, and that is, that is God's work, I would say. I would agree wholeheartedly. And I think it's refreshing to see that the conversation has become so prevalent and it's shifted to the extent where we're not necessarily having to spend as much time convincing people that recovery is needed. Mm, I feel like that's that true. Was it was a really big first part of the conversation of to say, you know, let me explain, <laughs> like, let me just kind of paint the picture and put all the pieces out for you to be able to judge in and of itself. Do you see the trends? Do you see mm, the trail mm, mm. of heartache that has been caused? I mean, just recently I said something about the church being broken and I had a, a lot of, uh, well, current evangelical friends just jump on that and, and accuse me of all sorts of things because I was saying what I have found to be true over and over again in terms of the structure and again, the, the patriarchal influence and the narrative and, and all the rest of it. And one of the things that was said uh, was the idea of, well, church isn't broken, but people are broken and they need Jesus. It's kind of like, okay, I know where you're headed. <laughs> I used to say that. Um, and is it possible that something within the structure and the foundation of this environment, of this community, of this platform, isn't actually in line with the values that God has set out for us. And even if you want to take God all the way out of the picture, the values that we as human beings want to treat each other with, is it just possible to even start there? So I guess the conversation still has to happen, but maybe yeah. hopefully just not as much. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's an organization that uh, that I'm a part of called Red Letter Christians. Have you ever heard of them? No, but I want to know more. <laughs> yeah, so they the whole premise of um, of Red Letter Christians, and there's a book by the same title. It's written by um, Tony Campolo and Shane Claiborne. And that's a name I haven't heard in quite a while. Though. I know, right? <laughs> still out there doing their Watch thing. Watch back yeah. to the eighties. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, 
so anyway, so the idea is, you know, of course, there you, you've you've seen the Bibles where the words of Jesus are in red, mm-hmm. right? And so the idea is, you know, those those are the words that we really need to be paying attention to. If we were to be red letter Christians, Christians who really lived out Jesus's message, mm. you know, and and from there, you know, back to our theme about pulling out values, you know, there are a number of values that are deeply embedded into Jesus's words. Mm-hmm. And if we are to then, and you know, this is of course Shane Claiborne's work around the simple way, um, if we are to take those values and to shape our Christianity around those values, it calls us to live in, in a very different way than many of us live, right? Um, so of course, you know, he, he spends a lot of time um, on poverty issues and so on and so forth. So, so this, is, this is, I think, all sort of related, right? Mm-hmm. This, this, um, this idea of uh, if we really, like, what does it mean to be a Christian, right? Like, is it really about being Christ-like? And if so, who is Christ? <laughs> and right. and how does, how, what is, what is Christ like? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and can we pull out those ideas and really make decisions around it? So this also reminds me of, um, uh, I write about this a little bit in the book about the uh, uh, church community in Indianapolis. Do you remember this church, the Life Journey Church in Indianapolis, that it's an MCC church and also evangelical. So very progressive evangelical. Mm-hmm. So the head pastor who um, is gay, you know, growing up had really struggled uh, with being a fundamentalist evangelical Christian and also being gay, right? How do you, how do you make, how do you make that? Yeah. yeah, How do you reconcile that? Right. And, um, and so ultimately what he ended up doing as an adult, uh, you know, is he went into the scripture and studied how Jesus made decisions, you know, like, let us look at the person of Jesus and the message of Jesus, and let's look at what Jesus does, and let's see if we can emulate that mm-hmm. to help us through some of these really difficult issues that we're still, we're still, you know, as a culture wrestling with. So, so you know, one of the things that he found is that Jesus consistently says, you have heard it said, you know, and then he'll, you know, he'll quote scripture, and then he says, but I say to you... <laughs> right? That happens again and again, right? Jesus is, Jesus is looking at the old mm-hmm. and uh, not, not totally disregarding it, but, you know, looking at the old and taking it into consideration. And then when the spirit calls <laughs> for a new direction, right? Um, saying, but I say to you. Mm-hmm. So what would, it, what would it be like if we were to take seriously the um, the promise that we have the Holy Spirit, you know, and access to the Holy Spirit, and that we could also be able to look at the text and uh, look at multiple texts, right, mm-hmm. and wrestle with the with the wisdom that has been recorded over the ages of people wrestling with these ideas of, of God and life, mm-hmm. um, and then and then also you know, touch in with the spirit. Yeah. Actually <laughs> tap into our own connection. <laughs> exactly. And say, and say, you know, is there a moment for, uh, for us to, to move beyond mm. what is, uh, on the page and, uh, and to live in, in emulation of the spirit, uh, as opposed to the letter of the law. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that reminds me of the um, Jeffersonian Bible. Are you familiar? I'm not. Um, it's a very similar uh, concept in terms of the red letter Christians in that Jefferson literally took a King James Bible, cut out all of the things that Jesus said, repasted it back together again. And that is what he used as his Bible. Hmm. Yes. About the idea of, you know, kind of white evangelical Christian America and how that's a whole nother, (laughs) that's a whole nother rabbit trail, but just this idea of the values of our country there's a lot of things that have come to light when you really dig down into who our founding fathers were and what they actually believed as opposed to what we've been told that they believed. And, you know, kind of, again, that spin on corporate America, Christian America, how one has the hand in the other's pocket and back and forth. It's, there's so many different layers. And I know I sound a little bit of a conspiracy theorist as I'm going into that, but at the same time, Jeffersonian's Bible was probably one of my first pieces of going, hey, wait a second, there's something else here. Yes, yes, yes. Fascinating. Yeah, I think you're really, I think you're really, I think you're really onto something there. And I really like this theme that has emerged in our conversation around values because I, 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 even with that Jeffersonian Bible, I can only imagine, you know, reading through it and saying, you know, okay, so what, what's here? What are the values and are we living them? Or are we in fact, in many cases, living uh, in the exact opposite way? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, Linda, this has been an amazing conversation. I'm so grateful for your time and and just your presence and being here with us. Thank you. Absolutely. I'm so happy. I'm so happy to have joined you. Oh, well, this has been great. Um, And for those of you who are listening, you know that we have a private Facebook group. In order to be a part of that, you join our mailing list. So we'll get all the show note links for you for that. And if you're already in, then you get to pop over and find our bonus segment with Linda, which we are going to have available for you this afternoon. So thank you so much for those of you who are listening. Of course, anytime that you can share it with a friend, rate, review, all that fun stuff. But more importantly, just being able to have the conversation and being able to have that level of vulnerability in connection with people in your community and say, hey, this is my reality. This is what I've experienced and I want to talk to you about it. That's the whole idea, finding ourselves in each other's stories. So thank you again for being along in this adventure. And uh, Linda, I'll see you on the other side in just a minute. Awesome. (laughs) Awesome. I look forward to it.